economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to the show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. All right. So here we go again. I'm just back from a vacation slash business trip, probably more vacation than business trip, but I did give a talk to the Alaskan Republican luncheon in Fairbanks, Alaska, which was pretty awesome. And I heard that some things in civilization happened while we were gone. So we're going to do a little Fauci talk and I'm going to let Dr. Jacobson and Dr. Clark lead the way here on, uh, on that discussion. Take it away, fellas. All right. Well, as many of our listeners have probably seen, a large dump of leaked emails came out via the New York Times that have correspondence between Dr. Fauci and a bunch of different people, scientists in the private sector, other government people, bureaucrats. And the emails kind of shed some light on some some interesting things. Dr. Clark, what, what do you think? What's, what's your big takeaway? What, sh- what should be the big takeaway from the emails? I'm not saying that we should publicly execute Fauci and put his head on a pike. I'm not not saying that either. (laughs) Look, one of the things that I thought that came out that was obvious was that Fauci, there are a lot of things that Fauci claimed to have not known or claimed to have not changed his position on, which the emails make starkly clear that he knew and that he changed his position on. And I think these things have been obvious to anybody who's been paying attention. But I think what's interesting about the things that are coming out now is that these things are actually being reported on. So I think the key ideas here are things like mask efficacy and lab leak theories, which I have thought were obviously always plausible, but it was very odd that you had the corporate press running this really insane interference, suppressing anything that disagreed with what Fauci said. And now they're, the corporate press is kind of turning on him. So before we get too deep in the weeds, for our listeners, let's, let's add something of faith and economics to the discussion before we get too deep. And so what I'm hearing is our typical incentives matter and bureaucrats in public positions maybe serving other purposes than just the public good. And in this case, even straying from the science. Is that right? Yeah, I straying from just basic <clears throat> truth, even, even like prior to the science. And so wow. a, another big revelation is that, you know, things that we sort of already knew and that like Rand Paul, for example, brought up in a cross-examination with Fauci, that the National Institute for Health and a lot of the people under Fauci have funded this gain-of-function research in China, specifically in the Wuhan lab lab in China, that the U.S. has funded research into creating new viruses <laughs> in this lab that we think that maybe the coronavirus leaked out of in China. Like, you know, it's not specific. We don't have, you know, the receipts that specifically coronavirus was created with U.S. funding. But still, we know that we sent some taxpayer dollars essentially over there in the form of grants and other things. 
And so this is kind of concerning when you think about it. I, I think it's just time for us to be honest with ourselves that trusting scientists isn't necessarily the best idea, not because they're not good scientists, but because they have other motivations. And so you saw a lot of scientists running around and also trying to run interference. We, we had claims by some scientists that they were being threatened for forwarding the lab leak hypothesis by other scientists, because the thought is that these scientists were afraid that if gain of fun function research got exposed as something that's not good to fund, that they would lose their funding. And so I think you're right, Russ, basically behind this, I think it is a lot of, you know, bureaucratic sort of grasping for, for government funds and government money. And we can't trust people who are trying to get tax dollars to support their livelihoods, because if something comes out that shows that their livelihoods are bad for the rest of the world, like they're engineering deadly viruses, they're not going to get the funding anymore. So it doesn't, we don't even have to go to the science to say, don't trust the scientists. <laughs> We cannot trust them because they're human beings, which should be obvious all along, but it kind of took something crazy for us to even talk about. So this. it sounds like original sin folds its way in here somewhere. Some of the other things yeah. we talked about on the Tom soul with uh, the conflict divisions type of thing. Sure. I think there's lots of different elements that I feel like we've spoke about over the last year and a half, not the least of which would be the Great Barrington Declaration, which we spent a lot of the full podcast on. I think Justin brought that up. And that listeners, that would be another podcast to go back on where we kind of went in detail through that those claims. Maybe you can elaborate on that, Justin. Yeah. So the argument of the Great Barrington Declaration was that lockdowns do not work and that the better way to mitigate the spread of a deadly virus is to have the most vulnerable populations self-sequester and let that virus run through the rest of the population in order to get to herd immunity and that it actually saves more lives. And now in hindsight, what we can say when we look at the results, not only of cases, but of deaths, is that, shocker, lockdowns don't work. But the other thing that's, I think, clear from the Fauci email dumps is that Fauci knew this. Yeah. You know, and so if you look at lockdown efficacy, mask efficacy, and the Wuhan thing, uh, you know, if you look at his emails, he explicitly says things like portions of this virus look engineered. Um, and then he puts out press releases and says things that are directly in conflict with that when he talks to the press. And then you have the corporate press and social media networks banning anybody who says that the right. lab leak thesis is plausible. So you have the you have not only Fauci lying, but you have Fauci's lies being enforced by, you know, people like Susan Wojcicki at YouTube, who will, you know, brag on camera too about enforcing a policy that bans anything that disagrees with what the CDC says. And the problem was that the CDC completely flip-flopped all over the place. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I like to think that the press and the experts, you know, there's that book by, you know, the the death of expertise. I can't remember who writes it, but he's really obnoxious on Twitter. And, you know, he bemoans the fact that experts aren't being trusted. You know, people don't trust the experts anymore. That's because <laughs> the experts aren't trustworthy. And this goes back to what Peter and, and you, Russ, were saying earlier. And I can't think of anything better than the absolute plummet in the stock of expert, expert credibility. Mm -hmm. uh, because we have seen that these people are petty 
and they will refuse to admit they were wrong, even when that refusal results in, you know, human lives. So now Fauci at this point still has his job. Yes. (laughs) He has had his job since the eighties, since the AIDS (laughs) outbreak, which he also colossally mismanaged. Wow. Well, the, the other thing that came to mind is how the doctors and researchers with the Great Barrington Declaration should be the next ones we at least lean on quite a bit that they're verified. My point is that now we have evidence of the scientists or experts, the ones that were good. And so the normal thing would be from taking your empirical evidence and then adjusting your future behaviors accordingly and using those experts for future problems. But that probably won't happen either. Yeah, as a purely reasonable you know, proposition, Russ, that certainly won't happen. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I really do believe that we, we can't rewrite the Constitution today or anything like that. And amendments are extremely hard to pass. But there needs to be some sort of recognition that we have to have a separation between, of science and the state. That these two things can know, uh, similar to the separation of church and state, yeah. you know, the church yeah. has a lot less influence in the world today. It, it's almost unimportant to have a separation of church and state say it's not as if we got rid of that amendment. If there would be like theocracy rising up, it just wouldn't happen. The church doesn't have that power anymore. Yeah. What does have the power is what most people put their trust in every day, you know, for right and for wrong, which is, you know, scientific experts and things like that, testable hypotheses, the technology it creates. And obviously, we can't totally separate the two spheres. Government has to have some sort of interaction with like scientific advances. But there, there needs to be some separation in terms of money. I think that's what's become the most clear to me, that it no longer makes any sense for us to fund, even I think at like public university levels or Ivy League university levels, scientists. Because when you fund scientists to find certain things or do certain things, they find uh, certain things. things Yeah, (laughs) believe it or not, even with scientists, demand curves slope down or supply curves slope up. If you pay someone more, they're going to supply more of something for you. That shouldn't surprise us. And it's really time to separate the spheres. Yeah, I mean, so how would you draw that, though? Because I'm thinking we, we do make choices that impact future and behavior. And so you'd like to think whatever those decisions are, we're using evidence, evidential data. Do we, do we just allow the private sector to generate that information? And then the public sector, government sector uses that as it comes about? I mean, are you looking to really withdraw all funds that way? Is that, I think that'd be best. Strong. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, I'll be interested to see if someone comes out and defends this gain of function research that's been done. But like, think of what, and I I have to see, I was listening to, you know, a libertarian Dave Smith's podcast. And so I'm stealing this from him, but think of how huge the benefits would have to be for gain of function research to justify the coronavirus outbreak. If that's really where coronavirus. Explain a little bit what you mean by gain of function. Yeah. Again, I'm not a super sciencey person, but basically what they do is they take current viruses and they try to add new things to them. And so go ahead, Justin. They try to make, they take a current virus and they try to make it more deadly to give it uh, a gain of function. That's the function. Then the argument is when we make these viruses more deadly, we can kind of get ahead of the curve. Ah. And so we'll know how to fight these viruses. So gain of lethal might be another word we could use. Yeah. So so (laughs) let's, let's now compare costs and benefits. Maybe there's some benefits to this gain of function research. I can't even imagine what it is, but imagine that there is. Now stack it next to the millions and millions of people we've been told have died from coronavirus across the world, right? 
you know, it, it's, it seems like an obvious cost benefit. Yeah. In fact, compare a lot of government scientific funding. What, what has really been the benefit of government and science over the last, we'll say, decade? Does it stack up to millions yeah. of lives or yeah. not? I think that that's actually an open question, one worth exploring. If we're talking cost benefits. We got, got Tang, though. We, we, we did get Tang. <laughs> We've talked about the Tang um, argument before. <laughs> and and that's, not, that's ignoring the fact that, well, what would the private sector have generated right. instead if the government had, hadn't crowded out things? So I think there's a very reasonable case that government should just put no money to science's pocket at all, yeah. uh, directly or indirectly. I think it's also important to note that I think it's not just the government money, but I think there's a weird and dangerous symbiosis between yes. government money and academic publishing. And I, you, you know, I'm anyone who knows me knows that I'm not the biggest advocate for Peter Singer's vegetarian uh, <laughs> argument. But one of the arguments that he puts forward in Animal Liberation is that a lot of the really objectionable experiments that were done on primates was done purely to make an, a publishable article. They would say, well, we haven't done this experiment yet. If we do it, we can write the paper and get the publication. And I think something like that goes on with in the viral case for in academia too, is that, well, we, you know, we can write a paper if we do this gain of function research. Yeah. And well, this looks like a good spot to take our break. Um, when we come back, I want to talk about this old model of government, the way, the way things worked. It, it might have made sense in the past due to a lack of information, the way we currently fund researchers at universities or whatnot. So when we come back, we'll discuss that issue of a market failure and whether the lack of information in today's society is still justified to operate business as usual. We'll be back in just a bit. By 2030, the Gordney Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to students' experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty and overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. We have uh, college credit now available for high school students where you'll learn some microeconomics and get some college credit at the same time. These credits are transferable to any university that you go, but we hope that you'll consider Ottawa University as a great place to go for your college experience. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Peter or Justin or Russ today. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider giving us a five-star review. It helps other people find us. We'd like to do a mailbag episode, so please send your questions to info at GourtneyInstitute.org. Okay, welcome back. So I wanted to talk about the lack of information problem. So this is a classic part of economics that we teach in principles class of usually it's market failure, which also relates in public choice economics as government failure, but it's really a problem of information in general. When people are deciding on something and we can think of it in terms of a transaction, uh, we want both the buyer and the seller to have equal amounts of information so that when they negotiate on a price, that price reflects any deficiencies. You might think of a piece of real estate and maybe there's a leaky roof or something. Well, instead of 120,000, once you learn about the leaky roof, if both the buyer and the seller are aware of that information, then we just 
factor the price of a new roof into it. And so maybe it's 113,000, right? So prices then reflect our values. And when two people exchange, they both created value for themselves with the exchange that took place. And so when it comes to government and public goods and, and what economists call externalities, where there might be third parties that are positively or negatively affected by a transaction, we may need government intervention in cases. It's been the traditional rule to correct the market's failure to bring about an efficient solution. And that starts to disappear as the buyer and the seller have more and more information. And so this could be in regard to climate change or pollution. And, and today we've really started off with the, the Fauci talk on that, you know, can we even trust the information that we're, that we're hearing and that people might have incentives to lie or conceal things because of other agendas that we might be unaware of. And so as we have more information through computers and the internet and blah, blah, blah. I think it leads to there being more room for private solutions as opposed to government solutions. However, we seem to still be stuck in our old ways. Like how we funded things in 1950 is the same way we're funding it today. The government's collecting taxes, usually not enough taxes, by the way, as we've talked about in our deficit and debt uh, episodes, but um, they are funding initiatives and activities for research and development at public universities. And that model may have been somewhat justified in 1950. Um, but as more and more information comes about, I think there's enough private incentives for people to seek out these solutions because they're able to turn them into marketable opportunities and make a profit on their research and development dollars. Whereas in the past, when markets weren't as fluid, that might have been difficult to do. And so and this and it certainly might not be true in, in every case, but I think there could be a move that way. Whereas what we did last year is what we do this year seems to be the continual mentality. And, and even worse yet, the as new problems arise, the answer is for more government dollars or more government funding as opposed to less. And so that's what I mean by the old model or what I'm thinking is the old model. It's really the current model. But I think we could slowly start to move away from that. I think there's examples from around the globe that show that other countries have been able to move towards more privatization and successfully doing so. Uh, Estonia comes to mind when they broke off from the Soviet Union. They took a very uh, free market approach in terms of how they do their voting and some public aspects using technology. And so I think there's a number of places that have some evidence to show that maybe we'd be better off moving away from that old model. Yeah, I, I think that the classic justification for government's involvement in science and scientific research is that scientific discoveries become public goods. And what a public good is, is it's a good that you essentially can't stop someone else from enjoying. And because of that, you can't exclude them from having it. And also it kind of just benefits everyone. That is, you know, one person enjoying it doesn't destroy the other person's enjoyments of it. Sort of like the sun, right? You can't very easily exclude someone from enjoying the sun. You enjoying the sun doesn't prevent someone else from doing it. That's, that's non-rival, non-excludable. Because of that, it's hard to sell things like the sun or like air or like scientific knowledge. Because the scientific knowledge benefits everyone, the fact that we know we have to wash our hands now, that knowledge is both non-rival, that is, you washing your hands doesn't prevent someone else from doing it, 
and it's not excludable. You really can't prevent someone from knowing that unless like you're raising them and from very young and keeping them away from everyone in the world, they're going to find out washing your hands is an important thing. So everyone benefits that from that. Everyone benefits from the fact that less people get sick. So if we can't sell it in the market, well, surely we have to provide it with the government. This is the classic justification. But the problem with the public good arguments is we're now entering an area where we've had sort of an extreme public bad too, as a result of science. And so that's, for example, if COVID is the result of gain of function research, whether it was funded by the U.S. government or by the Chinese government or whoever, then we've created essentially a bad that is both non-rival and non-excludable yeah, as well. Yeah. Uh, you, you can't keep coronavirus uh, away from people we've been trying to. We've been trying to exclude uh, those who have coronavirus. So not only does the, is the disease itself uh, a bad that's been created and a negative externality, but the policies that we've responded to with the disease that we now know are basically ineffective, for example, lockdowns ending in Texas and them having lower coronavirus case reports than other states that have kept them up after the vaccine for both cases, both the states that have and haven't locked down. Uh, that's pretty good evidence that lockdowns are ineffective at stopping the spread of coronavirus. It doesn't mean that they can't ever prevent a single individual from spreading coronavirus, but on the whole, it seems they are ineffective. So these big economic impacts that have hurt people, the big, uh, you know, literal disease impacts, these are all the results of government involvement with science. So maybe there are public goods, but you have to weigh those public goods against the negative externalities and public bads, which seem after this latest revelation to be very large. So let me put forward the argument that I think you're making, which I agree with, and I'll see if, if you agree with it too, is that, uh, look, the public good argument that the state needs to fund science is that these public goods are extremely important and they would not be produced but for government investment. Right. And you are arguing, or at least I think it's the case, and I think this is what you're saying, that both parts of that argument are false, that these public goods could be produced without government investment and indeed were often produced without government investment prior to this massive government investment. Secondly, the goods that actually are being produced from this government investment are not that good. In fact, many of them are bad. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think, I think between the two of us, that that's the, the argument that came out is Basically, government has to fulfill both those two conditions. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It both has to be the the necessary provider of public goods, as if like they can't actually be made into private goods, which it's not clear that they are. And even if they are the necessary provider of public goods, their provision has to also not create bads greater than the goods, which it seems unclear now. Following the email leak, especially where we know, you know, this might have something to do with the Wuhan lab, which might have something to do with gain of function research, which might have been funded by the US. I'm not sure what policy response or, or scientific discovery that's been made in the last 10 years that outweighs the damage that's been done to the world economy that's done by coronavirus. It just seems unlikely to me that we've made a, you know, a good discovery that I, I can't think of off the top of my head that's outweighed that. So, what's your response to the argument of, well, yeah, free markets are fine, but only the rich really benefit. The poor will be kind of excluded from that. What, what, I, I think it's a argument that I, you know, mostly disagree with, but at the same time, I'm, I, there, is, there is something there, but it, it's certainly on the minds of a lot of people that needs to be addressed. I mean, well, how, do, how do you respond to that, Peter? There's a real concern that the research interests of poor people and the research interests of rich people are different. 
And if you don't have government funding of science, then only the rich people's concerns in terms of scientific studies will be addressed. I think that's like a legitimate concern. It could be true. I think what that requires, as we've talked about a million times, our cop-out answer now, is it requires a sort of cultural shift, a focus on, and it really is a shift. I think it's a shift back to what science was originally about, which is discovery for the sake of understanding truth, regardless of if you end up rich or poor or persecuted by the state or beloved by the state. That's what science used to be. It used to be as a scientist, oftentimes you took big risks when you made important discoveries in pursuit of truth. You know, it might end in you going to prison, you know, back in the days where the the church was uh, less interested in in scientific discoveries. It it could end up contradicting a ruler of a country, which could put you in trouble. Uh, But scientists used to pursue in despite of that. And so I, I think we need a movement back towards what science, you know, is sort of originally started as, which is a pursuit of truth without regard to the riches or the, you know, expert status granted to the scientist who makes the discovery. Well, allow me to push back a little bit. What (laughs) if I said something like, Peter, you are looking at the history of science, the way people look at, you know, the history of music and they say, boy, the music in the eighties was great. And then they look and they just look at the greatest hits, right? Uh, What if I said something like science has always and ever been thus. It is always political. It is always, it has always been the case that the that most scientists are self interested. Sure. And the reason that that's the case is because scientists are people. Yeah. So what? So while I agree that it needs a culture shift, the culture shift has to be on the part of regular people to realize this about scientists that there is that science isn't infallible. Scientists aren't infallible. Everybody in here has a PhD. We're all people. I'm petty. I'm mean. Uh, you know, and I you're honest, apparently. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I agree. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think there's there's nothing better than to actually get to know you know one of these scientists or academics as a people, yeah. as a person, to realize, oh. These are just mean, yeah. petty, normal people. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think they're like, you can do two, two moves here. You can do scientists as angels or scientists as regular people. And so if it's the scientists as angels, then you can say what I just said in response to Russ is like, we really need to move back towards, you know, science without recognition and for truth. But if we're going to take the step and say, well, scientists are normal people, I'm fine with that too. But then Russ's concern about, you know, science favoring the rich rather than the poor, you know, that's that concern still doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is, well, if scientists are, you know, self-interested and not interested in, you know, the well-being of society or truth or anything like that, then when you have the state fund it, it's unlikely to me that it's going to help the poor either. It's going to help the scientists, which we can see, you know, that's in conflict with the poor here, right? The lockdowns, who did they hurt the most? Yeah. Well, it wasn't journalists who make $100,000 a year writing from their Manhattan, yeah, 100000 way low. <laughs> that, that's, that shows how little well, I make, but, uh, but, but uh, writing from their apartments, you know, it, it hurt the poorest of, of people. And so in either case, whether scientists are angels or normal people, the way to help the poor is not through government funding, I think. Yeah, I guess that would be my 
pushback on the science or the um, research helping the rich and not the poor. Because I, I think the course of history is crystal clear that the poor have benefited the most from markets. Sure. Um, if we take a longer term view, especially, and we look at the poor in the United States, um, I believe the statistics are like 99% of people in poverty have refrigerators, a, le- a little bit lesser percent have air conditioning, phones, cable, you name it, we have a, a, a lot. And, and, and you know, a, a really good point, I, I hate to interrupt trust, but I just want to, because I think you brought this up and it's a fantastic point, it should have been my first answer, <laughs> is if if science really is a public good, like, like we say, like in the case of like learning how to refrigerate, the knowledge of refrigeration, you could say is maybe a public good. Well, anything that's a public good can't just benefit the rich, right? right. Diseases impact both the rich yeah, and the poor. So knowledge on how to, good, the research yeah. about how to cure the disease helps the rich and the poor. So there is a nice feature about, you know, allowing public goods to to move, public goods to move to private hands. And that it's like actually really hard to favor the rich in doing scientific yeah. research. And so, and so the evidence of bringing people out of poverty from markets is crystal clear also over the last 30 years in developing countries, the reduction in global poverty has been all attributed to markets opening up and, and people having personal economic freedom. All the research points to that not international aid programs, which have in large part been a disaster in a lot of areas for a lot of different reasons. And then my last comment is that in order to get rich, you really need to serve the poor because most of us are in that middle income, lower income, poverty, whatever, whatever that strata, if you look at the population, if you want to sell a lot of product or come up with a new innovation, whether that be, and this drifts a little bit away from the public good argument, but, but nonetheless, I mean, uh, working for a drug company coming up with a, you know, some sort of whiz bang product, you you need to hit the masses. And so I, again, I think there's incentive, the nice, what I'm bringing up is there's incentives to actually help the poor because then you're, you're selling more of your product, whatever that product is. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, there, there's always lots of arguments uh, about public goods. So like, well, but how would, how would we ever produce them privately at all? Um, and I think as Russ pointed out, technological advances actually made that uh, more likely. And, you know, things like first mover advantage are real. If you're the first person to discover a vaccine and you can make, you know, millions of the vaccine and release them all, uh, you're going to capture the market really quickly. Yep. So I, I I don't believe that, not only do I not believe that government's very good at solving the public good problem, which is the, the biggest issue, but I actually believe increasingly private markets are, are suited to solve most of what we think of as traditional public good problems. Yeah, the true public goods are actually very rare. Yes, um, that's right. Is, is the, when we start getting down to maybe national defense, of course, and and uh, a few other things, but most of the government spending is not on what economists call public goods, as you showed with non-excludability and non-rivalry. So, all right, well, that looks like a good place to wrap. Any last final words? Separation between church and science. Yeah, that was an interesting one because we've, we've state and we, science. We, excuse me, <laughs> same, same, same difference. Oh, <laughs> well, and uh, that might be another podcast topic because we have done related podcasts on treating science or climate change, you name it, whatever, uh, science more broadly as a religion. So it makes perfect sense to separate that as well, if if that's the argument. So, all right, well, this has been a production of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa University. We'd like to thank you all for listening. If you feel so inclined to give us a five-star rating, that helps give uh, other people opportunities to find us as well as just spreading the news to your friends. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.